uh, the wealthy businessman driving the speeding red Porsche blasts his horn at you as he dangerously overtakes and zooms off into the distance. If there's any justice in the world, you think to yourself there'll be a speed camera over that hill and he'll get caught. The guy at work takes credit for all your ideas. He does the minimum amount of work, but he always looks busy when the boss is watching. He gets the promotion. And you think to yourself, if there's any justice in the world, they'll work out he's incompetent and lazy and he'll get what he deserves. The major company collapses, leaving employees without entitlements or a job and creditors owed millions. But the CEO, responsible, walks away with bonuses worth millions. If there's any justice in the world, she'll be brought to account and she'll have to pay in some way. In this world, the rich and the privileged get richer and things never seem to change for the poor. It seems like evil wins while honesty doesn't. But it's never been different the way the world has always been, including back in the days of ancient Israel, before the kings ruled. They were days when the rich and powerful would do whatever they wanted and there's no one to call them to account. And it was the poor and the weak who suffered. Days when those at the top, like the family of Eli the priest, abused their power and those who were supposed to serve, uh, those they were supposed to serve, suffered. If you lived back then, you'd be longing for God to step in and bring justice. That's just what we see from a woman who's been on the receiving end, an ordinary young mum with a toddler. We pick up the story in 1 Samuel in chapter 2 and she has been praying at the tabernacle and she's been rejoicing that God has heard her prayer and has turned things around after years of suffering. Uh, We'll see in a moment from chapter 1 what the problem has been. But before we do, just listen to some of her thanksgiving at God's goodness. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. It had seemed like God wasn't listening, but then he saved her. And now she's learned a lesson about God's character. Verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you, there's no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Three things about God, he's holy, he's morally pure, he always acts rightly. But not only that, he knows. He he sees everything. Nothing is outside his his gaze. But not just that, he involves himself. She says, by him deeds are weighed. He is a judge. And he brings his holy character to bear against human sin. There's three very comforting qualities about God if you've been on the receiving end of injustice or violence and it's three very scary qualities if you're the one who's been causing it. We get a hint of the sort of thing she's been suffering. Verse 1, she boasts about enemies. Verse 2, she talks about arrogant boasting. 
So let's jump back to chapter 1 to see what has been the cause of this. Uh, Chapter 1 tells us it's a story about a man called Elkanah and he's got two wives, Penina and Hannah. And as we read through chapter 1, we just get a hint about why the Bible will often describe polygamy, many wives, but it never condones it, it never commands it, it never allows it, it just describes it. And the reason, uh, I think, is that whenever we see polygamy, it, it always makes it's such a mess. It's never a good thing. Uh, and it's the same here. Uh, there are two wives. Hannah has her husband's love, but it's Penina who has all his children. Hannah's barren. And Penina just loves to rub it in. Verse 6, every year they go to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to offer sacrifices. And verse 6 we read, And because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And her husband would ask her what was wrong, even though he knew what was wrong. Verse 8 He said, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, I'm not always the most considerate husband and I'll often say the wrong thing at the wrong time, but even I know that's a big mistake to say that. Apart from the fact that his other wife is smirking at Hannah over his shoulder... To say, aren't I worth more than you, more to you than ten sons, it's thoroughly self-centred. It's knowing that her real problem is no children, but not understanding it, not hearing it. And so Hannah's got three problems. She's got an insensitive husband, she's got an arrogant rival, and she's childless. It's enough to put her off her food, or to drive her to drink, but instead it drives her to prayer. Verse 9, she heads to the tabernacle. She walks past Eli the priest who's having a snooze in a chair at the front door. And verse 10, in bitterness of soul, she wept much and prayed to the Lord. She hands it over to him. That's exactly what God wants us to do. But here's the unusual bit. She makes God an offer. Verse 11, if you remember me and give me a son, then I'll give him back to you. He'll be dedicated to your service for life. And here's what leads to her prayer of thanksgiving in in chapter 2. God hears her. God answers her prayer. Verse 19 says, he remembers her. He remembers her. Remembers her request and he answers it. Sometime later, Hannah conceives. She gives birth to a son. She names him uh, Samuel, or Shemuel, which means God hears God remembers and Hannah remembers as well. She remembers her promise. She waits until Samuel is weaned, maybe two or three years, and then verse 24, she takes him back to the the tabernacle to where God heard her. She offers her sacrifice to God and then she offers her son to Eli the priest. Verse 26, she says, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He'll be given over to the Lord. 
And it's at that point Hannah prays the prayer that we read earlier, thanking God for hearing her and for delivering her. And we now see that the enemies refer to her other wife, Penina. And if we jump down to verse 5, we see she rejoices in how things have been turned around. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. It's Penina who's missing out rather than gloating, while it's Hannah who's blessed with kids instead of weeping. But there's a lot more to this prayer than just the birth of one little baby. And that's why we started our series on 1 Samuel here. Because through her struggles, Hannah recognises something about God and his character. And she applies that to all of Israel as God acts in history. That's his usual way of working, she says. He is the God who regularly reverses things, who overturns the powerful and the proud, who fights injustice. And he loves to work with weak and insignificant people because they humbly look to him. They recognise that without God they're nothing. And as the story of Samuel unfolds, as we come back to it in the next six or eight weeks, we'll see again and again these same things, uh, these same themes. We'll see, verse 4, how the strong and the proud are brought down but those who stumble will be strengthened. Or verse 5, how the full go hungry, but the hungry are filled. And it's all God's doing. Verse 6, he's the one who brings death, he makes alive, he sends poverty, he brings wealth, he humbles and he exalts. And so that means, as Hannah prays, verse 9, it's not by strength that people prevail, When you're strong, you you want to do it on your own. But it's humility that leads you to pray. God can bring down anyone, no matter how strong, how proud they are. So what counts is that you are one of his saints. God guards his saints, but he silences the wicked. So what we see is that Hannah's prayer is an introduction to the whole book. It's a lens that we look at uh, the rest of the story through. The themes she identifies are themes that are played out in the life of Israel. For example, we see how the tallest man in all the tribes of Israel rises to become king, but then he's dragged back down to nothing because he wants to do it his way. That's King Saul. And then we'll see how the smallest son of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe gets lifted up by God to be the second greatest king Israel ever has because he humbly looks to God for strength. That's David. But not just that, as we keep reading past Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, we see how her little boy grows up to be the prophet all Israel listens to. He grows up to be a better priest than the professionals, while those who are born to it, Eli's and his wicked sons, they're actually brought down to nothing. 
Did you notice the comparison as we read through chapter 2? Hannah finishes praying, she heads home, she leaves Samuel there and he's ministering before the Lord under Eli. But what are Eli's sons doing? Anything but that. Verse 12, they're wicked, they abuse their position. They demand the best cuts of meat before they've been offered and take it by force. And while little Samuel is ministering before the Lord, Eli's sons, verse 17, their sin was so great they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Then again, verse 18, we read, little Samuel keeps ministering, keeps serving the Lord. And he's even wearing a little priest outfit. And every year his mum would bring him a new one. In verse 21, he grew up in the presence of the Lord. But that's the complete opposite of Eli's sons. Verse 22, there's more abuse of power. They sleep with the female servants around the tabernacle. They don't do it in secret. They're famous for it. Everyone knows about it. And just like Hannah recognises, God is going to bring them to justice. He's lifted up the lowly Hannah and now he's going to bring down the high and the proud. And then verse 26, once again we find out how little Samuel is getting on. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they've got a bad reputation with people but Everyone loves Samuel. And in the rest of chapter 2, we see how the two sons will be brought down. Uh, While into chapter 3, we see how little Samuel begins to rise. At chapter 2, 27, a prophet brings a message for Eli. Eli had known what was going on and he'd even eaten the stolen meat but done nothing and God rebukes him. Verse 29 we read, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering? Now there's some scary words there, especially for those of us who are fathers. Because Eli is held accountable for his lack of parenting. He'd known what his sons were doing but didn't step in. And for many of us fathers, that's something we're guilty of. Our temptation when our kids misbehave is to say nothing, just keep the peace, to leave the parenting up to our wives. We overlook their sin, either because we can't be bothered or we don't want to make a fuss or we've got other important things to do or or we're not taking seriously our responsibility to lead our family, we take the easy road instead of the road God calls us to, the right road. Now it's not quite the same for us as for Eli. He oversaw the sacrifices for the nation, but nevertheless God gives us fathers a responsibility to lead our families. And when we fail to guide our families as we should, perhaps we're not that far from Eli. But when it comes to fathers leading their families, notice how sinful decisions now affect the family line for generations. 
God's judgment for Eli falls on the whole family line. Verse 32, some will die and those who don't will be full of grief. In fact, verse 34, Hophni and Phinehas will both die on the same day. And the end result, verse 31, God says, there'll never be an old man in this family line. When you have the Eli family reunion picnic, it'll be all kids and young men. There's not a grey hair to be seen. They've all died young. God's judgement against Eli and his sin. Now, it won't work quite like that specifically for us, but nevertheless, the decisions we make today about our children will have an impact down through the years. As you grow up and teach, as they grow up and teach their children what they've learned from you. And they will learn lessons from you, whether you think you're teaching lessons or not. Kids are always watching, watching how you speak to your wife and how you pray and how you value church and how generous and friendly and how patient you are. So take seriously the responsibility God's given you. Honour God more than you honour people. And while Eli's family line dwindles away, the proud are brought low, he's going to raise up the lowly and use them. And the lowly one we've seen in the background so far has been little Samuel, ministering before the Lord faithfully while the evil sons go bad. And chapter 3 describes how God calls him. It's a a bit of a famous story. Little Samuel's asleep in the tabernacle and he hears a voice and he thinks it's Eli. Turns out it's not, so he goes back to bed. It happens again, verse 6, and again, verse 9, and finally Eli realises it's God's voice. So he says... To Samuel, go and lie down and next time say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. That's what Samuel does and and God speaks some bad news to little Samuel about how everything he promised Eli will come true. Samuel's scared to, to tell him after all he's only a little boy but Eli says, verse 17, don't hide it from me. If only he'd spoken up against his sons like he wants Samuel to do. So Samuel tells him everything Eli accepts it and he says, verse 18, he's the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. And we see Eli humbled. And chapter 3 finishes with a summary of how Samuel is lifted up. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, he was a prophet whose words came true. And all Israel recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel. And that's where we'll leave the story for today. God has put in place godly, humble leadership and Samuel will be there for decades listening to God and guiding Israel. And Hannah's observations about God They remain true down through history because in the fullness of time God raises another leader for Israel from humble beginnings. Jesus, born as a helpless baby in a manger and he grew up 
always obedient to his father. Philippians 2 describes how he humbled himself, how he made himself nothing, how he put off eternity and took on the nature of a servant. A servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. But then there was the great reversal. Philippians 2 describes how God exalted him to the highest place. We we sang the song earlier. He raised him from death and seated him at his right hand and gave him the name that is above every name. God worked with the humility of Jesus to bring about his good purposes. And he wants to do the same in us. Just like Hannah, he loves to work with humble people. I don't know if you have ambition, if you want to make it big in this world, but if you do, you need to be warned. The way God works again and again is to bring down the proud and the powerful and instead to take the small and the humble and the weak and the lowly and the insignificant and as they look to him, he uses them and fulfils his purposes. So the lesson for us is to come to God in humility. He loves to show grace to broken people. Don't come to him with a list of your achievements. Don't come only after you've had a good day and you haven't sinned too much. Don't wait until you've got yourself sorted out before you come. Come at your lowest. Come in your need. Come in your brokenness. That's the attitude God loves to work with. And if you really want to make it big, if you want to make it big in God's kingdom, you need to think small. If you want to be first in the kingdom, you need to be last now. Think humble service. Think about meeting the needs of others rather than meeting your own needs. That's just the inspiration Paul wants us to take from Jesus in Philippians 2. Just before that great description of Jesus, we read these words. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others before yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who humbled himself to death. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us humble people, people who look to you, people who look to the example of the Lord Jesus who humbled himself. We thank you that you used him to bring about your good purposes, that you raised him and seated him at your right hand. Lord, we want to honour Jesus in all that we do. Make us humble people that you might use us and glorify your Son. Amen.